The World Changing Women podcast is brought to you by the 2019 World Changing Women's Summit. Join us January 28th through 30th in Santa Cruz, California to nourish yourself, connect with other women in leadership, and elevate business. For more information and to claim your tickets, visit worldchangingwomensummit.com. That's worldchangingwomensummit.com. Hey there, podcast listeners. You can follow us on Twitter at WCWpod. If you haven't yet, we'd be so grateful if you could help us out by subscribing, rating, or leaving a review of this podcast. Thank you, as always, for listening. You're listening to the World Changing Women's Podcast, where each week we talk to badass female founders who've built game-changing brands that are making the world a better place. I feel like I flounder with like a lack of purpose, and if I have a lack of purpose, then there's a real lack of joy. So I think it's how to continue challenging myself and my team in a way that's fun and always going after the next thing without getting too aggressive about what we're going after, but also without getting not aggressive enough. Sometime in 2008, after completing her law degree from Berkeley, Erin Wade found herself working as a lawyer in the Bay Area. And although she had worked her way through law school and found a good job doing what she was supposed to be doing, she found that she wasn't truly happy. In fact, she was miserable. And it was during this miserable time that she couldn't stop thinking about an idea that she'd had for a new business. She dreamed of opening a macaroni and cheese restaurant. And soon after she had the idea, she actually found herself leaving her lawyering days behind to open a restaurant in Oakland, California called Homeroom. And over the last decade, she's built the restaurant into a thriving business, employing over 100 people and becoming a staple of the Bay Area food scene. But Erin didn't want to just start a typical restaurant. She wanted to build a place where people could come to work and have work be the best part of their day. In this episode of World Changing Women, we'll hear from Erin on how she's built an incredible workplace culture, how she walked away from her promising career as a lawyer to pursue her dream, and how she's built a new sexual harassment system for her workers that has drastically reduced incidents of sexual harassment by customers against her team members. I'm your host, Megan French Dunbar, co-founder and CEO of Conscious Company Media. Welcome to World Changing Women. So let's start with the origin story of Homeroom. Can you talk to me about how the idea came about? Sure. So I was working as a lawyer, and this was 2008, and really hating life. (laughs) And I had actually only been a lawyer for about half as long as I had been in law school for, so it seemed a little hopeless. Like, you know, you got to stick it out a little longer than that. It was raining one night and I was coming home after a really tough day at the office and I had this craving for mac and cheese. And you know, after working a long day, I'm thinking to myself like, where can I order this from? Where can I go? And I realized there was nowhere I could go and that just seemed nuts. So I pulled out my dad's recipe that I grew up eating and I fixed it for myself and it was just so delicious. I remember thinking in that moment, there's got to be a mac and cheese restaurant. Like, I have to create it. And, yeah, thankfully, maybe six weeks after that moment, I was fired, and it <laughs> <laughs> the idea stayed with me, and 
almost eight years later, here we are. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about that. What did you start doing? Was it because you didn't have a job that you were like, hey, I'm going to just explore this thing? Or do you think you would have quit your job to start this thing? You know, I wish I could say that I would have quit my job. That was, I had actually articulated that to close friends, that that's what I wanted to do. And I had actually always been in love with restaurants. I worked professionally in restaurants before I ever went to law school. I just didn't have the confidence in myself earlier in life, nor the money to pull it off. But I think when you have those golden handcuffs on you, you know, like I want to leave, but every time you see that paycheck, it's really hard to. So as much as I say I would have left, like I had given myself, I had said I wanted to quit January 1 and I was fired like, I want to say mid-November or something like that. Would I have left January 1? I wish I could tell you yes, but I don't think I would have. I think I would have just kept pushing it and pushing it. But that was a wake-up call because I had never really, you know, failed to that extent at something previously. And I think it was just like, wait a minute, what are you doing? You know, you're getting fired, not because this firm is being unfair to you, but because you suck. You're unhappy. <laughs> you know, don't keep doing this. So what did you do from there? You have an idea? Like, what? how did you decide to actually go for it? You know, I took a little trip, a little road trip to clear my mind after being fired. And I remember being in the car, talking to one of my best friends on the phone. And I am really risk averse. And she was like, Erin, your worst case scenario if you go for this restaurant is that you'll be in exactly the same place you are now, which is that you'll have to work as a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, she's right. And in that moment, I was like, I've got to do this. So I didn't really know what I was doing. And every day I just started trying to make progress towards this goal of opening a restaurant. And it opened a little over a year after the point that I was fired. Can you talk to me about some of those little things that you started doing to try to start to open a restaurant? What did that look like? Was that just like coming up with a name, buying a website? Like, how do you start a restaurant in a year? Gosh, it was it was all over the place. I mean, for one, I had no idea of what a budget was. So first I sat down and, you know, I spoke with my husband and convinced him that we should put a quarter of our life savings into this. And I thought that was realistic. And then I started going to visit locations and talking to contractors and just trying to figure out, you know, how do you even open a restaurant? You know, what does it cost? And it was pretty clear that not only was that quarter of our life savings not going to work, but actually our entire life savings also wasn't going to work and that I was going to need more money. And so I approached literally the only other person I had ever met that also wanted to open a restaurant and that also had savings and asked if she wanted to do it with me. So I basically enlisted this I mean, really quite random. We had known each other for not very long, a person to, to be my business partner. And she kept her job and I was not working and just focused 100% of my time and effort on getting this off the ground. So testing recipes, looking at locations, you know, filing the legal paperwork to form the company, interviewing anyone who would talk to me you know, putting together a business plan, trying to get financing from a bank, which we could not get. <laughs> uh, so it was just a combination of always trying to move the needle, just waking up every day and having some kind of goal of being like, okay, today either we're going to finalize a recipe or going to work out funding or going to talk to contractor, just always trying to move the needle a little bit forward on, you know, one element of what it seemed it was going to take to get it open. So what was the day that you actually opened? was Valentine's Day 2011. I mean, it was pretty crazy because since, 
you know, even with two combined life savings, it was really a fraction of what it should take to open a restaurant. So everything had really been done by hand. Our husbands built the tables. Um, you know, we'd done the floors, the walls, uh, the logo, I and mean, literally everything you could do yourself was done um, by hand. And we'd been doing all these these events, these like pop-up events, which had, which had garnered us like quite a following. And so thankfully, you know, the day we opened, we only had two weeks of operating expenses in the bank. And so if we had not immediately succeeded, even after all that, it would have immediately failed. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But thankfully, you know, people were really excited and couldn't wait for it to open and had lines out the door from day one and they haven't ceased and it'll be eight years this February. So let's talk about those eight years. What sort of growth have you seen as a company? Well, you know, all kinds. I mean, some that are pretty basic, like, you know, we opened with a staff of 14 and today we have a staff of 100. We opened a standalone takeout location a few years into it, realizing that we're just bursting at the seams. And so now those two locations, they're only a block away from each other, but I mean, it really ballooned our business. And yeah, our revenue has quadrupled since we opened through all of those things. So it's funny, people are always like, oh, you're one location, like, when are you going to grow? And I'm like, we've been growing the whole time, you know. Most companies would have need to have opened multiple locations to have experienced the revenue growth and the employee growth that we have. But it's, you know, for me has been really a matter of like, how do you keep digging deeper into community and building more and more? I don't know what the word would be. How do you keep building the community you create with both your customers and staff so that you do more business in a way that's more impactful? And it turns out you can keep building a business in one place to be really quite large. So I'm curious, now that you have the benefit of looking back over eight years, is there anything at the beginning stages that you would have done differently in setting up the business? Yeah, a lot of things. I mean, it was definitely a really great period of of personal growth. I think I would have done more to raise more money, honestly, to have had more help. And I think I would have, you know, for all the people I talked to, I think I would have done... I wish I'd had sort of the self-knowledge of even who I am as a leader and what I'm good at so that I could have really focused in on that. It took me a lot of years to get there. There's nothing wrong with that by sort of learning through trial and error. But I think coming in, knowing what I wanted to be and do within the business and how to best help people, I think would have made me more purposeful and less stressed out had I known that from the beginning. Mm -hmm. But I mean, maybe it's not possible to know that. Maybe you have to go through you know, washing dishes at 2 a.m. before you're like, this isn't really what I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't why I did this. <laughs> so speaking of that raising money bit, um, I'm curious, it sounds like this was essentially self-financed. Was that, has that been all the way through or have you guys brought in any external investment or how have you guys funded this? You know, gosh, it's been really interesting. That's something I've grappled with a lot. I actually did end up buying out my original business partner. So today it's just me. But I mean, I've gotten approached a lot over the years by people who want to put money into homeroom. And being such a mission-driven business, I've always been a little bit reticent to take it. You know, the problem with bootstrapping is that you end up in a situation like we were where you're doing a lot of things that is really, frankly, a waste of your time to be doing if you can hire people to do it for you. But the benefit is that when you have the control, you can create whatever it is that you want to create. And there's something very powerful 
about that. So you've taken no external investment? Taken no money and don't don't plan to really for the foreseeable future. I think at some point it may become necessary, but the goal would be to retain control. And if I can't retain control, then I don't really want to take the money. All right. So Homeroom has this like unbelievable corporate culture stemming from this idea of being the best part of everyone's day. Can you talk to me about that? Yeah. So, you know, in addition to that dream of bringing, you know, mac and cheese to the masses, I also had honestly never really enjoyed work anywhere that I had worked. And I was a little bit nervous that maybe I was just one of those people that was never going to, you know, that people who talk about waking up and wanting to go to work in the morning were just a different type of more positive person than I am. Uh, So when I started Homeroom, I wanted it to be the best part of my day, but I realized that that would be a pretty empty and unfulfilling dream if it wasn't the best part of everyone else's day. And so, you know, from day one, like the first job ad we ever posted, I mean, hundreds of people lined up to interview because it was just so utopian in its scope of the kind of workplace that I wanted Homeroom to be. You know, it's sort of been like a, I'd say like an eight-year learning roller coaster of figuring out how to live up to that promise because it's been really trial and error. Like this is not an industry where there's lots of players that I can look to and be like, oh, so-and-so is really doing it great. I mean, it's notoriously hard to work in, high turnover, low pay, degrading conditions. And so when you're trying to create the opposite of that, even just finding leadership who has experiences in any other type of workplace is really hard to find, right? And so we realized we had to start creating that ourselves. and figuring that out ourselves. So um, I'm happy to speak more to like the specific things that we do that make work the best part of people's day. Yeah, please Uh, do. Sure. Well, we focus on four things that, that we think are super important. One is being the best part of people's day. So literally just like, what is it that makes you happy to walk into work or to walk into a restaurant? And I'd say that's almost like the simplest thing. You know, we'll just do brainstorms and talk about all the ways that you can just be an amazing community member. The second one we focus on is sort of similar. Um, It's really just having an incredibly diverse team. So our team actually reflects our community. And Oakland is one of the most diverse cities in the country. And our staff has got to be among one of the most diverse as well. But we're really committed to having not just our staff be diverse, but our leadership team. So our leadership team is more than 70% women and people of color. And, you know, my hope is that that's always the case because in this industry, it's really not. Like basically the higher up you go on the ladder of power, the whiter and more male it tends to be. And I think that honestly, that influence of having women with a voice and also people who are often voiceless in these companies have a voice has really changed I mean, it's what creates a dominant culture that is able to see and respect lots of different people. The third one we focus on is empowerment. And that one definitely spend like a whole podcast talking (laughs) about for sure. But, you know, if I had to generalize, most businesses of any type, not just restaurants, are very paternalistic in how they approach employees. So even something as simple as discipline, right? Like you do something wrong, you get a punishment. You are late, we dock your shifts, things like that. And so we use a restorative, um, well, model drawn from restorative justice. So at least one part of my legal background was helpful. (laughs) 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 
Um, so we're always trying to right the wrong as opposed to punish the wrong because we don't want the company to be people's parent. We want to be, you know, a partner and a team member. In the example I gave you previously, if you're late, we're not going to, you know, dock your shifts like they might at another restaurant. We're going to sit down and have a conversation about who was impacted. Well, it's your team because they had to do your work while you weren't there, right? How do you make it right with them? Well, for one, you probably stopped doing it. And two, you need to go and have conversations and apologize and really find out what the impact was and make it right. Or maybe you pick up extra tasks for them at the end of the shift. Whatever it is, you know, we're not here to punish, tell right or wrong, tell you what to do, but for all of us, just try to be better, more aware people. And we're also an open book company, so we share our finance with our staff, we do profit sharing at all levels of the company, and I think that's a huge component of empowerment and team building. I mean, business is really just a game, and but most companies aren't teaching their players how to play it. They're like keeping the score behind, <laughs> you know, like lock and key. Yeah, I think really getting people who are impacted by decisions to try to help make the decisions. And again, I could spend a whole podcast talking about all the ways you develop a collaborative workplace, but it's, it's unusual and it's time consuming. We really care about those cultural touch points and um, they're harder to scale because most people don't, don't bother to. Mm-hmm. So I know another piece kind of a lump in the empowerment category is this new sexual harassment prevention system that mm-hmm. you are working on. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah. So I think this is a great example of homeroom's culture at play. A few years ago, a number of staff emailed me saying that they were experiencing customer-based harassment. And honestly, I was just super shocked. I had no clue. And this is for someone who spends a lot of time at the company. And we had been really fortunate. You know, we have a really strong internal harassment policy that had never been an issue. So I was really surprised. But because we encourage our staff not to just bring problems, but to help create solutions to their own problems, they felt empowered to come and held a meeting with me. And we decided to just turn it into a big problem-solving session. And out of that, I believe it was actually a few problem-solving sessions, came a system that we've used for the past three years and and in recent months got a tremendous amount of national recognition for it. But it's really curtailed the most severe forms of harassment that our staff is experiencing and I don't think would have ever been created if it hadn't been created by our staff themselves. Can you tell me a little bit about it? Yeah, so we call it the Mac system, so the management alert color system, just because we are a mac and cheese restaurant. But uh, <laughs> <That's> so good. <laughs> um, and the basics are that we categorize behavior into three different categories. So a yellow is nothing more than a creepy vibe. An orange is a creepy vibe plus a comment that's not sexual on its face. So for instance, I like your shirt. Depending on how someone says it, it could be gross, it could be completely benign. And then a red is either an overtly sexual comment, so like you look sexy in that shirt, or sexual touching, like, you know, uh, well, I could list a whole bunch, but basically, yeah, touching someone else's body. And what happens is that for each color, a server or host or whoever's being impacted just has to report the color, and then a manager has an automatic action they have to take. So in the case of yellow, it's actually staff choice. You can either just alert the manager, say, hey, I have a yellow table too, I want you to take over the table. And the manager does it, no questions asked. In the case of an orange, the manager automatically has to take over the table. And in the case of a red, the manager automatically takes over the table and asks the guest to leave. 
you know, honestly, when we came up with it, we thought it was just going to give us a way to get impacted employees out of bad situations. We didn't really think it was going to curtail the harassment. But what's amazing is that it really has. When we first started using it, basically all the staff members at that meeting had their own red stories. You know, it was something that was like relatively common. And now, almost four years later, almost no one has. And we were like looking for these stories. You know, it's something that happens maybe once a year. And we're, we're really like trying to find from staff, like, does anyone even remember the last time this happened? And, you know, it turns out that most really severe sexual harassment, it doesn't start there. You know, someone doesn't start by putting their hand down someone's shirt. They start by giving them a look from across a room and then making a low-level comment and seeing if the person, you know, like comes back to the table and, and puts up with it. And they keep testing boundaries and pushing boundaries and then they end up pushing, you know, really awful boundaries. And so, you know, it's a great system because it gets, I mean, predominantly women out of bad situations that make them feel uncomfortable, even if nothing's even really happened. They don't have to justify themselves, and it's really easy for managers to use because it's just simple and effective, and it's really helped reduce the incidence of harassment that we've had. So, and you mentioned this has gotten some national press. Have you been approached by other restaurant owners that are wanting to implement this system? Yeah. So I wrote a piece on it for the Washington Post, and the New York Times wrote about it. I was asked to testify in front of an EEOC special task force. 2020 covered it. I mean, we've really like gotten a lot of attention. But what's interesting is actually that we were finding other restaurants saying that they were excited to use it. But I also started finding out how it was being misused in like ways that I never would have anticipated. Like I had this male consultant came and talked to me about how he was so excited that he adapted the system for this large tech company that had hired him to help do this. And he thought I was going to be like really excited to hear about this. But instead, I was so angry inside, you know, for one, because there's a man who's monetizing on the ideas of women <laughs> and also on the pain of women. But also, it's so inherently disempowering to have a man come in to try to solve what is predominantly a women's problem that I was like, how is this even going to be effective? Like, if I'm the woman at this training, I'm not going to think to myself, oh, this is a company that really cares about my voice because they didn't even hire a woman to come in and you know, give it. So, um, yeah, the more we started thinking about it, I, I think when I first wrote that article and it came out, I was like, oh, this is just a simple thing that anyone can adopt and everyone should. And, you know, one in 10 workers in this country is our restaurant worker. So if all restaurants adopted this, I mean, think about the change that would create, right? But there's actually some really subtle power dynamics at play that if you don't call out and honor them and train for them, I'm not actually sure how effective this would be, you know? Um, so we've actually developed our own four-hour training that we've just been piloting because we're like, you know what, if someone is, is going to work on this, like, let it be us and let's keep moving this conversation along and help teach other people how to do it. So back to kind of general homeroom, you've been at this for eight years and I am assuming with the growth of a company getting up to 100 employees and the scale that you're working at, I have a story that it's been relatively stressful and filled with pressure. Um, I don't know if that's true for you, but I am curious <laughs> if there has ever been a time that you've considered walking away, and if so, what got you through it? Yeah, I mean, multiple times. I mean, 
<laughs> uh, I always hate that the way movies and books are written is like that there's just this one struggle and if you overcome it then you'll be happy forever whether it's like meeting the love of your life and getting married or starting your own company I mean because I think reality is just far more complicated than that and that's certainly true of my relationship to my company I mean yeah, I think there have been points where I've gotten tremendously burned out and needed to take time away. I did that once. I did take a three-month sabbatical, and that was tremendously helpful in giving me clarity and perspective. Yeah, I mean, I think that the moments that I get most burned out or where I've really thought about walking away is where I sort of lose, like, what is my next goal? Where I've achieved what something that I set out to do, and then I don't have something bigger you know, like no next horizon that I'm after. And when you don't, or at least when I don't have something like that that I'm working towards, I start just like, I don't know. I feel like I flounder with like a lack of purpose. And if I have a lack of purpose, then there's a real lack of joy. So I think it's how to continue challenging myself and my team in a way that's fun and always going after the next thing without getting too aggressive about what we're going after but also without getting not aggressive enough and I don't know moments where you're just trying to figure out who you are and what you need in your next developmental phase and sometimes your company like any other entity in your life is able to give it to you and sometimes it's not and you have to go and find that elsewhere so yeah I guess I would say there's been many points where that have been really hard but I, I think like a long-term friendship or marriage or any other important relationship in my life, you sort of take pause and find a way to return to it with a new set of eyes and, and keep going. So looking back at everything that you've done over the last eight years, are you able to distill it down into two to three top lessons that you would give to other business owners, leaders, or aspiring entrepreneurs? Hmm. Wow. Yeah, I would say for one, I think it could be really hard to keep our own sense of of focus and what's right. And, you know, I mean, Homeroom will go on to open other locations. We all won't always stay on this block. But I received so much advice over time, like in the beginning, like, oh, dear God, don't open a macaroni and cheese restaurant. That will never be successful. Or, oh, if you want to be successful, you need to go open more locations. And like no one would dream of the volume that we do here. And so I feel like if I listen to other people about whether or not to even start my company or how to grow it, it actually it would either not exist or it definitely wouldn't be as big as it is. And I think that can be really hard to do to stick with your gut of what seems of what seems right to you. So I would say sticking sticking with your gut and yeah, I think spending a lot of time getting to know yourself because I find it like the higher levels of leadership it's really mostly about dealing with your own shit so that you can help other people deal with theirs and perform at a high level and you become really more like a coach to an entire team rather than even so much a player and to do that you have to be really aware of your own triggers and your own strengths and your own weaknesses and that of others and be very perceptive and be able to keep a level head. And I think I just didn't appreciate that for a long time. Like I just thought it was sort of about the work and I have to do this and be here and try to control this and X and Y and Z. And the more I've worked on figuring myself out and how to be the best possible 
leader, I think the more I've been able to help my team identify areas of weakness for all of us, work on them, not always perfectly, but I'd say where I've stumbled over the past eight years is when I lacked the self-awareness to see where I even was <laughs> and what was keeping me and the team from, from moving forward to the next place. So speaking of kind of working on yourself as a leader, I'm curious around what's your daily routine and do you have any practices that help keep you grounded? Yeah, I, well, for one, I have dedicated days of the week or mornings that I surf and I used to like hide it from people. Like I, I was too embarrassed to tell people that I work with what I was doing because it felt really self-indulgent. But then I realized that that's actually part of what makes me successful is having time and space to have perspective. So uh, I surf two to three mornings a week and it's very time consuming and I mark it off on my calendar and even when it's really hard at work, I generally stick to it. Like, because particularly if the sky is falling, like that's exactly when you want to have your head on your shoulders. So I'd say figuring out something that you're passionate about that grounds you and then committing to that and making it a priority and also communicating that so that other people on your team will do the same. Other things that I do, I generally do take regular vacations for a similar reason, and I have really hard hard boundaries on my, you know, time and space. Like I have two kids, and my evenings are theirs. And you know, so at five thirty, I'm I'm gone, and most problems can and will wait till the next day. And it can feel at the moment like they shouldn't, but I think honestly that having kids has really helped me learn how to maintain really hard boundaries that are actually really helpful and just cause everyone to be more efficient and me to be more focused. <laughs> so I'm curious if you can tell me about a time in your life when you had a life-changing moment. Hmm. That's a good question. Hmm. Well, you know, I think particularly if you are going to run a company that has, you know, 100 people and even though our turnover is much lower than the industry standard, I think that if you're in a company where you really care about people, I used to get really personally devastated when people would leave. I mean, I would take it so personally, like it was, you know, like they were abandoning me and not like my, my company. And I went to go visit uh, a friend Amy Simmons, who's the owner of Amy's Ice Cream in Austin, Texas, and I was touring their um, their headquarters, and their head of like training and development was talking to me about their philosophy on growth and change, and that you know they're an ice cream shop, and so that's no matter how awesome they are to work for, that is not where most people are going to see their career as being is scooping ice cream, you know, and so they realize that they just have this amount of time with someone. And the, their philosophy was that they wanted that person to come in, get the most they possibly could out of that experience, and then talk about it in the future as this life-changing thing, and that they would forever be a brand ambassador, and that both parties would learn a tremendous amount from the other one. And then there would just be an end, and that would be the end of that chapter, and the person would go on with their life, and the company would go on with its. And I think seeing the role of people on my team as like chapters in homeroom story and you know that there's times when certain chapters should end and other chapters should begin and that that's part of a natural life cycle of all of us growing up <laughs> you know I think that was really helpful because I think I just 
being so dedicated to being the best possible company for people to work for. When people would leave, I used to just get so devastated where I was like, oh, what could we do to like keep people here forever? And when the goal stopped being to keep people forever, but rather to just appreciate time you have and to get the most from it, I think that's just a better way of living life generally. <laughs> and uh, it really helped me, I think, do a better job in my work too. I love that. That's like very good for me as a human to hear. Um, what is the most important thing in your life right now? My kids, and I'm embarrassed to say that I don't think that was always true. <laughs> um, yeah, I think uh, there are definitely times where they've taken a really big backseat to work or friendships or surfing. And I mean, I'm embarrassed to admit that, but I think that's that's true. So yeah, I think I sort of came to realize that recently and, and wanted to rectify it. So I think I've spent a lot of years doing the work of like how to be the best possible CEO and I have still plenty of work to do, but I think I just assumed I was going to automatically be a really amazing mom and I mean, I think I'm a pretty good mom, but I think I could be a great one and yeah, been thinking more about how to do that while also being an awesome CEO. So speaking of being an awesome CEO, what do you feel like are the qualities of an awesome CEO or is it case by case? Um, I guess it really depends on the organization. But I will say, I say the number one, the capacity to listen and learn and adapt, because that's true no matter what, you know? And if you are really not just listening to the people in your company, but listening to the world at large, like what's going on? And are you learning and are you adapting? Are you changing? I think that always benefits the company. And I think that that's the perspective. Like I said, my, my view is that the CEO is really that coach on the sidelines. And if you're not seeing the whole field, then you can't be a great coach. So. Love that. Final question. We are living in a beautifully, wonderfully interesting time right now in our history. What is giving you hope for the future? I think the fact that we're finally starting to care about the stories of women and people of color is really fabulous. We had had our anti-harassment program for years and I never wrote about it because I just didn't think anyone was going to care. <laughs> you know? um, and I think people are finally caring, but I think more than that, women are finally feeling comfortable coming to the forefront. You know, like even that Washington Post article I wrote that went viral that sort of spiraled all this other attention that we've received for that program. I only wrote it because there was a chef whose headquarters is just down the street from ours. His company is about the same size. And he was getting written up in the New York Times for harassing his staff members. And I'm thinking to myself, this person is like on equal footing to me. And I don't consider myself a chef that the New York Times like often turns to, to, you know, like ask, you know, for quotes or advice. And I was like, if they're paying attention to this guy, why aren't they listening to me? And I think like once I just got comfortable being like, wait a minute, I am just as important as he is. And he was in the New York Times. I was like, well, damn it, I'm going to be too. And I was twice, actually. <laughs> 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 <Good deal. laughs> 
So I think, you know, to some extent, people are caring about women claiming a power, but I think women are also starting to feel more comfortable doing it, and that matters. The World Changing Women's Podcast is brought to you by Conscious Company Media. If you like what you're hearing, we'd be so grateful if you could help us out by subscribing, rating, or leaving a review of this podcast. As a reminder, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at WCWPod. Of course, we wanted to thank Aaron Wade and the entire Homeroom team. Also, Nina Bernardin, our incredible podcast manager, and our podcast partners on this, StoryPop. Join us next week for an interview with another world-changing woman. And thank you, as always, for listening. 